In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear saints of God, have you ever known someone or seen someone when you look at them and then you learn their name, you go, you know what, that name just seems to fit. I don't know that that was ever more true than it was for Jacob, this man that we learned and heard about in our first scripture reading from Genesis chapter 32. You see, Jacob was a twin. He had a brother. His name was Esau, and Esau was born first. But as Esau was coming out of his mother's womb, Jacob reached out and grabbed onto his heel. It's a fascinating story, a picture that just kind of marvels in your mind as it rattles around. And his father, noticing this, named the one who grabbed the heel of his brother. He says his name is going to be Yaakov. And that name means grabber. And if you hear that and you go, well, that's not a very pleasant name, you're right. In fact, it's even worse in Hebrew. You see, it's not just the fact that he grabbed his brother's heel, but this term, this name, Yaakov, this term to be a grabber, it comes with the... the it comes with the picture of grabbing in, in order to trip someone up, in order to deceive. It, it references somebody who sort of has kind of a shady character to him. And so if you and I were going to kind of look for a modern day equivalent, that might be it. It might be like if you named your son or at least gave him the nickname Shady. Can you imagine that? Oh, there goes little Shady off to his antics yet again. That was Jacob. And I don't know that there was ever a name that better fit a man. That was really just the beginning of Jacob's deceiving, his grabbing, his antics. You see, far before the twins were even born... God spoke to Jacob and Esau's mom, and he said, you know what, this is going to be an interesting set of twins that you have, because I'm actually going to allow the younger one to be given the birthright. The older one is going to serve the younger one, and that didn't happen. This was unusual. This was out of the ordinary. And after the twins were born... Jacob and Esau's mom actually fell in love with God's plan because Shady was her favorite. But not, not dad's. No, dad favored the older son, the firstborn. He favored Esau. And this led to a whole bunch of problems between father and son and mom and son. You see as it was with so many people throughout the Bible, and not just the Bible, but throughout human history, Jacob's mom and Jacob, they, they really weren't convinced that God was actually going to keep this promise and give to the younger that which typically was given to the older. And so Jacob and his mom got together, and they came up with a plan, a plan to steal, to trick 
Jacob's father into giving to him what God had already promised would be his. And it happened. Jacob's dad dad gave him the blessing, gave him the birthright, unbeknownst to him. And when Esau, the older brother, found out about it, that was it. He was done with Shady. He was done with the antics. He was done with the grabbing. He was just done with his brother. And so he swore to himself that the day that his dad died, his brother would too. Well, when Jacob found out about this, he took off. Armed with only a walking stick, he took off and he ran away from his past. But the very first night that he did, he settled down to fall asleep and God came to him in a vision. One of those memorable stories from the Old Testament. You remember, remember this one from Sunday school. Jacob is given this vision of a ladder, a staircase that reaches from the earth all the way up to the heavens and there are angels going up and down it and God is standing at the top of it. And there God speaks to Jacob. And he says to Jacob, I know you're on the run. And despite all of your grabbing and all of your shadiness, I'm going to make to you a promise. One day, I'm going to bring you back here. To this very place where you are sleeping. And this land, not only will you come back to it, but I am going to give it to you as a possession. And not just to you, but to your children. And to your children's children and their children. In fact, you are going to have so many children and so many offspring and so many descendants that they will outnumber the sand on the seashore. And on top of that from your descendants will also come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's what God promised to Shady. Who but God does that? He chooses to bless Jacob even before he's born by promising to him what was typically given to someone else. Jacob doesn't believe God will actually do this, so he plots and he schemes and he steals what God promised him. That rips his family apart, almost costs him his, whole, his own life, and now he's on the run for it, and what does God do? God promises to bless him even more. So Jacob wakes up the next morning, takes a hold of God's new promise, and starts walking toward the future instead of running away from his past. And despite the fact that that line I just said sounds incredibly inspiring and motivational, the next 20 years of Jacob's life would really be anything but. You see, he'd spend the next 20 years working for his uncle, his mom's brother, but you see, his uncle, his mom's brother, well, Shady was not his favorite, and he didn't care that it was his sister's favorite. Because you see, the only person in their entire family who was more shady than Jacob was Uncle Laban. And Uncle Laban found plenty of opportunities to pull the wool over the eyes of his nephew. He tricked him into marrying his daughter, 
He had him work for two decades, paid him next to nothing, found time and time again ways to shortchange him and to steal from him. And and, and as you read through these chapters in Genesis, it's kind of hard to read them without half a smile on your face. Because I think this is about as close as the Bible gets to teaching karma. You kind of just can't help but cheer against Shady, and he was getting what he deserved. And yet through it all, God kept his promise. He protected Jacob from his cheating uncle. He protected him from all the problems that Jacob could have had and should have had, working side by side with a man for 20 years who wanted nothing more than to rob him of every last penny. And yet at the end of those 20 years, Shady, Jacob, was extremely wealthy and had an extremely large family, just like God said he would. And then God said, Jacob... It's time to go home. And you wonder what kind of emotions Jacob experienced when he heard God say those words. I'm sure that there was a little nostalgia. Being able to show his kids his childhood home and his hometown and where he grew up. I'm sure that the heartstrings got tugged a little bit at the thought of seeing his mom for the first time in 20 years. But probably all of that rapidly faded when he reminded, when he was reminded why he left home in the first place. That he would have to go back and face the father he deceived and the brother who wanted him dead. But you see, Jacob was ready to face his past. He sent some messengers ahead to go and warn Esau, or at least to tell him, hey, your brother Jacob is coming home. And those messengers went with all kinds of servants and all kinds of animals, bribery, really, gifts to say, hey, we know your brother stole this from you like 20 years ago, but look at all of this he's giving to you now. And the messengers actually found Esau. And they came back and they reported to Jacob that, yes, your brother is on the way to meet you, but he's not coming alone. He's bringing with him 400 men. There's really only one reason why you would bring 400 men to a meeting. Jacob rightly assumed it would be to settle old scores. And yet, never without a plan, Jacob decided to split up his family and all of his possessions into two groups. And he thought to himself, well, at least if my brother comes and attacks one group of my family, then maybe the other group will be able to escape. And so that's what he did. At the end of the day, he divided up his his children and his grandchildren, and and he sent them off, and, and they parted ways, and there Jacob sat. Alone. Alone to think, alone to ponder, alone to pray, and to ask the God who promised never to leave him some questions. And that is where our text begins this morning. Alone with God. That can be a scary place sometimes, can it? 
Because in those moments, you realize that God doesn't always come in that small whisper of a voice like he did with the prophet Elijah. You're reminded that God doesn't always come in that lowly and meek image of a a good shepherd with a little lamb slung over his shoulders. You're reminded that God doesn't always come and the first words out of his mouth are, peace be with you. Sometimes, sometimes, God comes to wrestle. Sometimes God comes to bring a struggle. To engage you in a little spiritual combat. And have you noticed this? When God comes to do this, it's usually when we are completely exhausted. When we have no energy left to wrestle. Just when it seemed like nothing could make Jacob's situation worse. That's exactly what God appeared to do. Jacob wanted God to assure him, to strengthen him, and instead God put him in a headlock. Jacob wanted God to ease his anxiety and to give him another vision of a golden ladder going up and down from earth to heaven But instead, God gave Jacob the most exhausting, sleepless night of his entire life. Jacob wrestles with God in prayer. And we're told, actually, what Jacob's prayer sounded like. The words right before our text begins, Jacob begins his prayer this way. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. Now, that might just sound like sort of like a typical prayer icebreaker, but it's not. You see, Jacob begins by praying to the God he knows. He begins by praying to the God his father taught him to know. And it provides us with the first thing that we need to know when it comes to wrestling with God in prayer, and that's this. You can't wrestle with someone you're not close to. I don't know much about the actual sport of wrestling. I never did it, never had a desire to. But I know that much. That the further apart you get, the less wrestling that actually takes place. If you're going to wrestle, you've got to be close to someone. And so it's an opportunity for us to ask the questions this morning. Is your prayer life lacking? And if it is, how close are you to God? And I don't mean how close do you feel to God. Because you can feel close to God and be miles away from Him. And you can feel like there is a grand canyon between you and God and He's right in front of you. I mean, how close are you to the places God has promised to be. How close are you to God's Word? How often do you let His life-giving Spirit fill you with God's comfort and power? 
is being in God's Word, growing closer to God, a regular part of your life, is meeting the Lord in His Supper as important to you as an invitation to your favorite restaurant with your favorite people. When our prayer life is lacking, when we're not up for wrestling with God in prayer, that's when we start to usually toss out all of the excuses, right? You know these. We say things like, well, I, I don't know what to pray for, so I just won't pray. Or I, prayer doesn't work. Or God already knows, so why waste the time? Or I don't want to bother Him. But the reality is often much simpler. You can't wrestle with someone you're not close to. And we're much more comfortable when we keep God at a safe distance. But you see, this is why it's so important to be close to God. Because being close to God means that His Word informs your prayers it informs you what to pray for, not just for the things that you want today, but to pray for the things that God wants for you today and tomorrow and always. Being close to God means that you know that prayer always works because you understand that the essence of prayer is not God, my will be done, but God, thy will be done, and it is. Being close to God means you actually take comfort in the fact that God already knows even before you ask. That's not a discouragement from praying. That's an encouragement to pray all the more. God already knows and He still invites me, still asks me, still begs me to pray to Him. You see, because the purpose of prayer is not to inform God. It's to bless us. You see, God doesn't engage in this wrestling match with Jacob because he needed to learn Jacob's moves. No, he knew all of that. He engages with Jacob because he wanted to show Jacob just how close he was to him and that he would bless him. And finally, being close to God means that you know prayer is never a bother to God. Ever. I mean, just look at the story that Jesus told us in our Gospel from Luke chapter 18. Jesus told His disciples a parable for this purpose, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And maybe you expected Jesus, with that introduction, to tell some sort of amazing story of perseverance. A story about an athlete who just kept running the race until he was given the prize. Or, or maybe a soldier who refused to stop fighting until the victory was secure. But Jesus doesn't choose any of those. No. Jesus goes with the one about the unjust, wicked judge who didn't care about God and hated people and yet actually did the right thing in granting this woman justice purely because she would not leave him alone. And the conclusion is this. Jesus says, pray to God like that. Where you pray and pray and pray and do not give up. 
Think about this. God could have ended that wrestling match with Jacob like that. Why bother wrestling with him all night? Do you see what God is saying to Jacob? He's saying to Jacob, I have all night. In fact, I have every moment of all time. And what I'd love to do is just spend them together with you. Do you see how important this is, this praying with persistence? In fact, it's so important, I had a pastor, I heard him say once, that the most important work in life that you and I can do as Christians is to pray. And you have to know this pastor. This is a man who was a world missionary. He was a professor at a seminary and taught a generation and a half of pastors. You think about the lives, how many people he has affected and impacted and touched. And yet when asked, he said, the most important work of my life is prayer. And I think he's right. You see, this is why when a tragedy strikes and we say the words to the people who were affected, I'm praying for you. That's why you actually have to do it. Because it matters. Because it is the greatest and most important thing that we can do for people who are hurting who are suffering, who are weak or in need, that we could lift them up to the God of all grace, to the Almighty Lord, and wrestle with Him on their behalf in prayer. Or some of you, and I'm especially talking now to the, to the elderly among us, and I'll let you decide whether or not that applies to you. Some of you have come up to me and said things like, you know, Pastor... I don't know why God is keeping me around. I, I don't serve a purpose. I can't work. I don't contribute much to anything. I used to be so busy, and now I feel like I just sit around all day and do absolutely nothing. I don't understand why I'm still here. You see, we prize youth and energy so much in our culture that when our youth and our energy begin to fade, we assume that we don't serve any other purpose. But what if, what if life is simply God preparing you to be old? God is preparing you so that you would finally have the time and the perspective and the correct priorities in your life to do what mattered most. To pray. Others of you have been praying the same prayer for days, weeks, months, years, decades. You're praying that the Lord would bring your kids back to church or your grandchildren to be baptized. 
You're praying that God would give faith to your best friend or that he would give relief to your neighbor or to your parents. And you've been praying this prayer for such a long time that you are tempted to give up. Either you don't have the energy anymore, either you don't have the fortitude, or you assume that God is just tired of hearing about it. But Jesus tells you this story for this sole purpose. To tell you to keep on praying and to not give up. Keep praying. Keep knocking. Keep asking. And if you've ever prayed to God like that, wrestled with God like that, then you know that prayer can be an extremely painful endeavor. Jacob's prayer continued. He said, Lord, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. It's painful when we pray to God because of what it admits about ourselves. It admits, God, I don't have the answers. I don't have the strength. It admits, I'm not in control. And if we're being honest, like Jacob, then we also have to admit that we don't deserve a single thing we would ever ask for God to give us. And just in case the prayer itself was not humbling enough to Jacob, God touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. With a simple touch, God inflicts pain, and there it is. You see, Pastor, that is why I don't get close to God. Look what he can do. Look at the pain that he can inflict. Wrestling with God, persistently praying to God is a painful endeavor, and I'm not really up for suffering today. But do you realize how painful it was for God to come close to you? When all of God's creation had fallen into sin and was cursed with death, how much easier would it have been for God to just stay as far away from it as he possibly could and allow us and everything here to just implode? But God did not stay away. In fact, he came so close, he came in flesh and blood in order to experience humiliation, rejection, betrayal, loss, and unimaginable pain, all culminating with his death on the cross. And why? Because he considered the pain of losing you to be much worse. You were worth the pain to him. Brothers and sisters, being close to God can be hard. There's no sugarcoating it. In fact, Jesus likens following him to carrying your own cross. So why do it? Well, because you know the pain of not having Jesus is far worse. Because you know that whatever pain or suffering living in the shadow of the cross brings, it pales in comparison to having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. 
Again, think about how much God apparently struggled with Jacob. I mean, is it that God was just a really bad wrestler? Or is it that Jacob was like on an Olympic level? No, neither actually. The, the simple fact that at a simple touch, God could pop Jacob's hip out of socket showed the immense power that God had over Jacob. So then why go through this whole marathon wrestling match? Why didn't he just put Jacob into submission? Why didn't he just crush Jacob? If all God wanted to do was to inflict pain on Jacob, he could have done it right out of the gate. So why? Well, it's not because God doesn't have the power or the ability. It's because he has promised to never do that. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He says this of God, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Similarly, the prophet Jeremiah wrote, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. God does not come to put us into painful submission, but to save God does not come to destroy us, but to deliver. God does not come to crush us, but to comfort. Yes, even as we struggle, even as we wrestle, even as we suffer through waiting for God's answer. Jacob knew this about his divine wrestling opponent. Then the man said, this is God, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob answered, Then the Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Then he blessed Jacob there. So he called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. That promise of those blessings made all the difference in the world to Jacob. Jacob held on for dear life to the promises God had made, even as he suffered. And did you see the result? God let Jacob win. That has to just put the world's biggest smile on your face. That God let Jacob win. The Almighty God, when we wrestle with him in prayer, actually allows himself to be overcome by our prayers. He loves it when we persevere through the struggle and suffering and hold on to him through his promises. God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Not until you do what you have promised me to do. And from the, the bottom of that wrestling pile, that prayer may seem helpless and powerless, but it still doesn't change the fact that the entire theology of prayer is summed up in this petition. God, do what you promised still doesn't change the fact that God loves it when you hold him to his promises. It's why he wrestles with you in the first place. To show you that he is close to you. To show you that his promises to you are enough. 
and they are. Yes, God comes to us in different ways. When he doesn't appear to come through the gentle whisper or the good shepherd, when he comes and actually it feels like God is our enemy, when it feels like he's our adversary, when it feels like he's the one that we're fighting against, here's Jacob's advice. Don't let him go. Don't push him away. Hold God to his promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. Hold him to the promise that you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Hold him to the promise that he will give you your daily bread. And above all, hold him to the promise that he made to you on the cross. When you feel like God is your enemy, hold him to the promise that he cannot be. Since through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, you too have been given a new name. And it's not Israel. It's child of God. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how could he ever be your enemy? Even if everything in your life is screaming to you that he is. Hold to his promise through Christ that God has brought you into his family. And when you hold God to his promises, you know what will happen? You will always win. He will always call you his child. He will always forgive your sins. And he will finally show you that the arms that seem to be fighting against you we're only working to bring you closer to himself and to your eternal home. God grant that to you today and always. In the name of Jesus, amen.